0: Okay, we are live. Good to see you guys. Good to see those of you that are joining us online. Welcome to session two of Kingdom and Covenant. I feel like I'm loud again tonight. Guys in the back want to turn me down a little bit. So welcome to session two. Um, I think most of you grabbed notes on the way in. If you're watching online, you should be able to find the notes um, on the website, you can download and follow along the PDFs. You should have a, a couple of pages stapled together and then a diagram with some colors on it. I also put out the notes from last week, if anybody uh, missed those and wants them. If you were not with us last week or you need a refresher, last week our emphasis was on covenants and how covenants form the backbone of the Bible's narrative. We talked about how a covenant is a legal and relational agreement. It's established by God initiated to establish and secure the conditions and the expectations for a binding relationship that he has with his people. And we saw that God sets the terms of the covenant relationship, and he includes conditions, obligations, promises, blessings, penalties, and curses. And we looked briefly at all the major covenants of the Bible, God's covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Israel through Moses that we sometimes call the Mosaic Covenant or simply the Old Covenant, God's covenant with David to send an eternal king, and then the new covenant in Christ. And so the idea behind covenant theology is that we see the Old Testament and the New Testament in unity. Israel and the church, Christ's first and second coming, all the biblical covenants are all unified in God's big picture covenant of redemption, covenant of grace culminating in the new covenant, the new covenant through the work of Christ, where he comes to establish his kingdom on earth. We saw several principles of interpretation last week, the idea of progressive revelation, that revelation is revealed progressively. So in the New Testament, it helps us understand the old. We looked at, at the concepts of inauguration and consummation. Through the lens of the Old Testament, they see inauguration and consummation of the kingdom as one event. But in the New Testament, we see two events, right? Two acts of the first coming and the second coming that, that the Old Testament didn't anticipate. We talked about these two terms of Christocentric, Christotelic, Christ as center, Christ as the endpoint, and we see the pattern that Jesus established in Luke 24, and really I believe a pattern of of the roughly 332 quotes of the Old Testament in the New Testament where they see Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises, the prophecies, the laws of the Old Testament. Um, We talked about this term of typology. The idea that Old Testament characters, symbols, and themes are filled with the anticipation of Christ. That they prefigure the Messiah. They're a type of the one who is to come. We also talked a little bit last week about dispensational theology and some of the differences between covenant and dispensational theology. Our brothers and sisters in Christ that believe in the Bible, that, that love Jesus, that will be uh, celebrating with us in, a, in heaven, but have a different uh, set of interpretation for how they see God's plan of salvation working throughout history. So those in the dispensational theology perspective would, would see different dispensations within uh, the history of salvation where God deals with his people differently in each of those dispensations. And so rather than emphasize unity and connection, they would tend to see distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant, between Israel and between the church, and, and most from a dispensational uh, perspective are anticipating the reestablishment of Israel and a physical kingdom on earth. We'll talk a little bit about that later on. But, but covenant theology, the perspective that that we uh, unpack in the Living Hope Expanded doctrinal statement that the elders hold to, um, is, is going to want to see um, all the promises of the old covenant, both the people, the land, and the blessings that God promised to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ. Um, now, covenant theology, as we defined last week, does not mean that the church replaces Israel. It's often a criticism, uh, but Israel is fulfilled in Christ. So Israel comes to its culmination point in Christ. He is the new Adam, the son of Abraham, true Israel, son of David. So all the promises culminate in him, and, and through our union with Christ, those promises extend out to the church. And so we saw several of those diagrams last week. The promise to Abraham begins with one man, it extends out to the nation of Israel, and then gradually is, is refined through what we can call that remnant theology, the one single remaining remnant in Jesus, who is the offspring of Adam, excuse me, the offspring of, well, Adam and Abraham, and, and then through our union with Christ, um, those promises extend out to his people, to the church. Um, so through the completed work of Christ, we don't anticipate a future earthly kingdom for Israel or an earthly promised land. And we'll talk more about um, how that's unpacked in the book of Revelation, our expectations for the new heaven and the new earth in the second coming. But all of those Issues that we talked about last week really are foundational and crucial to how we understand the Old and New Testament, how we understand and interpret the Scriptures, how we understand God's plan for salvation. But but tonight, for tonight's purposes, how we understand eschatology, which means the study of the end times. That's going to be our focus tonight. I'm going to lay out lots of different issues, as we did last week. We are going to ask you to hold off your questions till the end, because we kind of want to lay out some perspectives and and come to a point, hopefully last 15 minutes or so. So please, please write down your questions. If you're watching online, you can type them in the chat box, and we will um, do our best to answer your questions here tonight. Um, Living Hope Church has our belief statement that all of us at Living Hope hold to, and then our expanded doctrinal statement that the elders hold to. Our expanded doctrinal statement as it relates to eschatology says this. God the Son, Jesus Christ, will come again to the earth in bodily form at an unknown time, bringing to completion God's plan of redemption secured at his first coming. At the second coming, he will bring final judgment on all people, living and dead, and angelic beings, and transform all things into a new heaven and a new earth. The unrepentant will face eternal punishment, and the regenerate will be raised to eternal life with a glorified body. So that's the, the basic framework. We're going to unpack lots of uh, perspectives and topics, even some differences, different scriptures and different interpretations. But but as we begin tonight, before I pray, let's keep two things in mind. Um, the first is that if you love Jesus and you believe the Bible is the Word of God, we have much, much more that we agree upon than we disagree on. right? So even if you walk out of the room thinking, well, I, I don't know that I that I see things the same way as Pastor Tim and Pastor Matt do. That's okay. We love you. Let's be humble. Let's trust one another. The second thing, and this is the thing that's most exciting, Jesus is coming back, right? That's what tonight is all about. Jesus is coming back. So no matter if you're frustrated, if you're confused, if you're bored, let's just remember that. Jesus is coming back. Hebrews nine twenty eight says that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Amen? So let's let tonight be about eagerly waiting for Jesus. Let me pray, and we'll dive in. God, we thank You for the promises of Scripture. We thank You for what Jesus accomplished in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, in His ascension. And we thank You for the promise of His second coming. Not to deal with sin, not to bring judgment, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. We, your people, will not receive judgment. Of course, judgment will come upon the world, God. But I pray that we would be a people eagerly waiting for the return of Christ, eagerly waiting for justice, eagerly waiting for the new heaven and the new earth. So give us grace. Pray for Pastor Matt and myself, Lord, as we unpack and and unfold these truths. Um, Pray that you'd bless those that hear, that we would be clear and that you would be glorified, that we'd be encouraged in our faith as we eagerly await for Jesus. Be with us now. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you, Pastor Tim. So, tonight we're talking about, as we said, covenant and kingdom, and eschatology is the big focus. There's really, you know, the word eschatology, you know, means last things. So we're talking about the, the end of history. And there's really two ways to think about eschatology. There's personal eschatology. What happens when I die, right? You know, and that that's the questions of, you know, when I face the Lord, you know, what will be my end? What will be my eternal state? That's personal. But there's also cosmic eschatology, right? What's going to happen at the, in the, at the end of the world? You know, what's God's plan concerning the whole creation? And that's Really, our focus tonight. So this seminar our focus there. Um, but you know, at the at the end of the day, you know, sometimes we we struggle with this question. I mean, some some people get really Christians get really excited and want to get really specific about eschatology. Other people just like, uh, you know, it'll all pan out in the end. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, what's your view of the the, the end times, the millennium? And they say, I'm a panmillennialist because it'll all pan out in the end. you ever, you know, um yeah sometimes we can we can think about these questions you know in personal eschatology, we all have a stake in because we 're all going to die unless Christ comes back before that. but a lot of us, you know the end may come in my lifetime or ten generations from now, so if we can very easily have a does this really affect my life kind of attitude um, and so I just wanted to just just to start by saying, why does eschatology matter and this could be a really long list but i 'll just say a couple things why this matters one. It answers the question, what should I expect to happen? Eschatology really sets our expectations. Are Christians always going to be minorities, strangers in the world? Or are we eventually going to be the majority ruling in the world? Will we undergo tribulation? Or are we going to escape it before it happens? Will things, Are things going to get better? Or are things going to get worse? Your eschatology there answers those questions and sets your expectation for how you should really interpret the present and the future, what should you be expecting? Secondly, it sets your focus. How should I live my life? Not just in light of Christ's first coming, but in light of his second coming, right? Uh, Pastor Tim just mentioned that, right, on in our, in our EDS. You know, and Second Peter 3, 10, 11 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. But since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of a holiness and godliness, waiting for and hasting the coming day of God? Guys, if we don't focus... On the world to come, we'll end up getting fixated on this present world and getting, uh, getting our, our focus um, taken off of the Lord. It allows us, thirdly, to be patient for justice. Um, at the coming of Christ, justice will be served. And this can actually be a great comfort to Christians throughout our lives and in different places in the world, different times. You we know, have suffered in persecution, tribulation, temptation, affliction in the world. You know, we have many enemies. And God the Son will judge the world in righteousness. And this is a great comfort because knowing that Jesus will come and administer perfect justice allows us to um, submit to the things that are going on in our life. It allows us to not want to take our revenge. It allows us to not want to take, take things into our own hands. But to live peaceably in the face of hostility and injustice and persecution knowing that the Lord Jesus will come and he will deal with it. And lastly, obviously, is hope, guys. The hope of the Christian uh, is resurrection and life in the world to come. Guys, though our bodies fail us now, um, we will get resurrection bodies. Though we weep, now weep, our tears will be wiped away. Though we now suffer want, we will inherit a kingdom. Though we are now hungry, we will feast with Christ. Though we are now lonely, we will, be, we will have a forever family. Like all of it, all of our hope is not actually set in when you die, you'll go to heaven, because that's kind of temporary. It's a resurrection and an eternal life and the new heavens and the new earth with God's people. And so, uh, yeah, this this should set our hope and our focus. So these things do matter, and I could say many more things, but eschatology hopefully is not something we just say, well, it's, it's interesting, but Christians debate about it, so I don't want to get involved in it. Um, but the fact that you're here says that it matters to you, so I'm glad you're here. So, we talked last week about covenant, this week we're talking about especially focusing on the kingdom. And if we're going to talk about eschatology, we have to talk about the idea of the kingdom of God. It, what is meant by that? It's this idea that permeates scripture, and it is of special focus in the New Testament. So I wanted, I wanted to go over just kind of in eight brief points what the, what the biblical understanding of kingdom is. And so this is kind of rapid fire, but it's important for us to understand. So the first thing is this. Throughout history, God establishes kingdoms through covenants. So guys, uh, covenants are the way by which God delegates dominion. What I mean by by this, when God set up the kingdom of creation, how he's going to rule over creation and have human beings who are made in his image rule over his creation, he started that by initiating covenants, first with Adam and then later on with Noah. And that's how he sets the guidelines. That's how he interacts with his people. That's how he, how he sets up the relationship. When he set up the kingdom of Israel, right, he said, I'm going to have a people from Abraham. He brought about that kingdom by means of covenants. Abraham, Moses, and David. And the same thing is true of the, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ. He brings that about through the new covenant. So it, it's just this broad idea that God has a kingdom and he brings these things about by means of covenant. Secondly, the Old Testament looks forward to a day when God's God's kingdom of peace would fill the nations and the earth, where the Lord would be worshipped universally. Sin is really this idea of, God, I don't want you to be king. I don't want you to rule over me. I want to rule over my life. That's one of my favorite definitions of sin because to me it's, it's very clear because that's what, it, that's what it works out and that's what sin is it's saying God I want to do things my way not your way and that's why we disobey it's why we live out of our flesh and out of our desires where everyone does as we heard about this morning everyone does what's right in their own eyes when Israel had no king right? well the whole world can be like that and the Old Testament looks forward to this day when well, it won't be just Israel that'll, that, you know, that will listen to God and submit to God but the whole world Guys, that's what the promise of the, king is, the kingdom of is, that the, in the kingdom of God there will be a rescue of rebels, of bringing them back under the benevolent rule of God. And they will be God's people, and they will listen to him and obey him and experience his blessings, and that will result in life and in peace. So this is um, predicted through a series of different um, prophecies and predictions. Thirdly, the kingdom of God is described in the New Testament Pretty simply as the reign of God. Right? It was easier, maybe in the Old Testament, where you could say, well, where's the kingdom of God? You could kind of look like, well, it's, it's there in Israel. We've got geography and we have all of that. But it, it's, it's a little bit more decentralized in the New Testament. Right? Fourthly, this, this, es- this eschatological kingdom appeared when Jesus came. If that's why when Jesus first came, right out of the gate, he started preaching the gospel. And the good news was the kingdom that, that we've been talking about, the Old Testament prophets were proclaiming and looking forward to, has come now that the king has come to earth. That's why in Mark 1.14, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so, fifthly, People now enter the kingdom of God by faith in Christ. So it's this thing where where people can come under God's rule and live with him as king right now. God rules over his people and they enter in the kingdom by faith. So that's why it's called the gospel of the kingdom. It's here and you can believe and live under God's rule now. I mean that's the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Six, this is an invisible kingdom now as Jesus reigns from heaven. This, we talk about this in Luke chapter 17. The Pharisees are asking when the kingdom of God would come, and Jesus answers, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will you say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So currently, right now, Jesus is talking about where the kingdom is now. It is, in some sense, it is a spiritual kingdom. It is invisible. It is is God ruling directly over his people through his son or by his son through his spirit. And so we who are in Christ are living right now with Jesus as our king. Uh, Number seven, this contrasts the kingdom of this world. And we see this, there's these these kind of these two kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ. And if you, as a believer in Christ, you're kind of, you are a citizen of God's kingdom, but we're still living in the kingdom of this world that's why scripture talks about us being exiles being sojourners like we're not living really in our land anymore we have a heavenly city a heavenly kingdom that we belong to that we're that is our true home but we're living here now but but the, the kingdom of this world has its own ruler satan is called the prince or the ruler of this world ephesians 2 2 he's called the prince of the power of the air at work in the sons of disobedience in corinthians 4:4 4, 4 he's called the god of this world uh, colossians 1 13 i love this description it says that when you came to christ you were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of jesus like you belong to a different kingdom now lastly number eight uh, the kingdom though it is invisible it's spiritual now um, the kingdom will come in fullness to the world when Jesus returns, and he will overcome every other kingdom and every other ruler so that, the only, so that only the kingdom of God and his people will remain. So he will come conquering. He will come to rule completely. And I love this. One of my favorite passages in Revelation 11:15. says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So that is what we look forward to. So that's kind of a, just a brief summary. We could say so much more about the kingdom, but that will kind of get us started. But that's, that, that eighth point kind of leads us into what we're really focusing on, and that is the return of Christ. Well, if we could talk about the first coming of Christ is the center of human history. It's the fulcrum. It's, it's the turning point of everything. But the second coming of Christ, that is our blessed hope. That is the end of history as we know it it's the climax of the story of human life ready the king will return in glory he'll slay the dragon and rescue his bride i mean that's that's every good action movie right that's every good story essentially mirrors that story our heart longs for that story and this but this idea that christ is going to return it's not a small doctrine it's not like oh it's in one or two places it permeates all of scripture particularly in the new testament it's taught and promised in Jesus' ministry in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24-25. Uh, Jesus promises it, at the upper Room discourse, when he says, Behold, I prepare a place for you. If I'm doing that, I will come back and bring you to myself, so we'll always be together. Uh, he talks about it through, throughout his time in his minute teaching ministry, right after his ascension, uh, after the disciples are still looking up at Jesus having just ascended into heaven, and there's angels saying, you know, just as you saw him go up to heaven, so he will return. So right away there's a promise. You saw him leave, he's coming back in the same way. Throughout the epistles, I was looking through it, and really there's only four epistles that do not make a clear reference to the return of Christ. One of them is Galatians, and that is because it's such a narrow uh, letter that has really dealing with a crisis in Galatia. The other ones are Philemon, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are very short letters, um, and so they don't spend much time talking about it. But every other letter in the New Testament makes reference to the return of Christ. So Christians are called to live in light of the return of Christ, to be watchful, to be prepared, looking forward to it, because that is our great hope, the resurrection of the dead. That is when our salvation will be complete. So there's much to be said on this topic in Scripture, um, and there's... You know, much, uh, many areas that people disagree on, but I think it's important that we start by saying, hey, what are the major events that we agree on, that Orthodox Christians agree that is going to happen uh, surrounding the second coming of Christ? This is just a short list. We could say more. But we believe that Jesus' return will be preceded by signs. That there will be increased persecution, that there will be natural disasters, that there will be spiritual darkness, there will be wars and rumors of wars. and that this, these, Some of these things are going to happen all throughout the church age. They've been happening ever since Christ left, and they will continue on. But there is a sense where there will be a heightened and an increased sense of these things happening before he returns. That Jesus will return in glory, as we read about in Acts one eleven. That this will signal the, the end of history as we know it. That Jesus will return physically, that he will be seen in the world, well that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. John chapter five talks about that that uh, the unredeemed and all evil beings will be condemned Ju- Jesus will judge the world in righteousness, and that, that those who are redeemed will be transformed or resurrected and come to life. that Jesus will remove the curse from the earth that is really cool. Paul talks about that in Romans eight that it's, that Jesus is not just going to save people but but the whole creation has been ruined by sin and that 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 creation is groaning to be restored and so god is going to remake the earth or renew the earth uh, and we will dwell on it with him forever so there will be a renewed earth that's talked about all the way back by the way in isaiah 65 and 66 second peter 3 revelation 21 this idea of that there will be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness truly dwells all those things i just said People from different views agree on those things. And that's all the main stuff, right? So let's major on the majors. I think that no matter where, it seems like where people disagree an eschatology is not the end point, but mostly how we get there. Different charts or different things, how we view the millennium or that, this or that. So that brings us to our next section. There are issues that are in question, right? And... Um, we're not going to be able to talk in depth about all of these, but here are some of the things that we disagree with or, or people define differently, right? The rapture. Is that something that is visible or invisible? And what is it? And when does it happen? Tribulation. Is that a specific period of great tribulation? Or is that descriptive of the time between the advents of Christ's first and second coming? The millennium. All right, of Revelation chapter 20. We'll talk a lot about that tonight, um, Ten verses, but what is that describing? Is that describing a spiritual reality, a physical earthly rule? Is it specifically Jewish in nature? What, what is going on in this millennium? The resurrections, how many resurrections are there? Um, do they all take place at the same time? What is the nature of them? The Antichrist, is that a singular eschatological figure at the end of history or during a tribulation period, or is that a more general system of evil? The role of national Israel does Israel have a, a unique role uh, in the millennium or in, in other uh, parts preceding the second coming of Christ? Do they, are they just included with the church? I mean, all, all these And there's, of course, more questions and more things people debate. Um, but I want to say that all of these, as important as they are, it's the, the major events that we all agree on that we should focus on. But these things do. Uh, the, there are issues that we disagree on, so it's important we talk about them. So, for whatever reason, we tend to, there are, there, there's a myriad of views, but they tend to fall into a couple different areas. And for whatever reason, we tend to group differing views of eschatology according to what you do with the millennium. It's, uh, it's, it's talked about in Revelation chapter 20. And because this is a very difficult passage to understand, uh, and people are trying to say, what does it mean and where does it fit with our whole eschatology? And so um, what we're going to do is I'm going to go ahead and read Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. uh, And then we're going to go through uh, four different views, postmillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, historic or classic uh, premillennialism, and amillennialism. And uh, you you, you should have got a little colorful page right here. And as we're kind of going through those, we'll, uh, we'll refer back to those. They're also online as well. So let me go ahead and read uh, Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 10. And that'll kind of, just so we, we have that in our minds as we're kind of talking about these views. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Sorry, I don't think you have the rest of these. <laughs> I'll keep reading. I think I only put verse, seven verses in yours. But you, you can listen to this next part. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, and sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. so those are ten verses, and really I include the first seven because that's really what pertains to millennium. Eight through ten kind of happen afterwards and so that so all the views basically are. Categorized, but what do you believe about the millennium and how does it fit? Of course, there's a lot of other issues which we'll talk about. So, a quick historical note. We're not actually addressing these chronologically, which means we're not going back to what are the earliest views in church history and then, you know, what came kind of later on. We're not addressing them that way. Actually, in the early church, there were early forms of what we call premillennialism, which was called Kyleism at the time, and amillennialism, though it wasn't called that either. You know, names change, right? Uh, but the ideas, those were the two was they were pretty prevalent. Uh the Apostolic Fathers, those are the those are the um, the people after the apostles who wrote um for the, the late first through the second century AD. Um they were divided on this issue. And so though so though different camps try to, you know, want to claim who who was the millennial view of the early church, uh there is some some division on this issue. Uh until St. Augustine uh, in the 4th to 5th century, wrote his massively influential book, The City of God, and he interpreted the millennium of Revelation 20 as describing the present time between Christ's first and second coming, and the first coming and the end of the world. Uh, Augustine is, by the way, probably the most influential Christian since Paul in church history. So uh, this view was held for no joke over a thousand years, um, well into the Reformation, although there were always those who held to a premillennial view as well. But right around the 17th to 19th century, among Puritans in England and America, a view called postmillennialism began to, began to become the dominant view. Uh, it waned after the World Wars of the 20th century. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, dispensationalism arose and became very popular among conservative Baptist groups, fundamentalists, Pentecostals, um, up until uh, it's, it's up until about the 1980s, where its influence has declined somewhat. Anyway, that was just to get, if you were curious about the historical development, that was the snapshot view. But, but we're going to talk about them in, a, in kind of a different order, and I'd like to begin with post-millennialism. So that's in the blue at the top of your, uh, your page there on different views. So post-millennialism. This is the view that Christ will return to earth after the, the millennium. In this view, the millennium is described as an age of peace and righteousness on the earth, brought about by the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church. That's how Wayne Grubin defines it in his systematic theology. So postmillennialism is called that because it believes that Christ will return after the millennium. So all views in some sense are either pre or post. Either Christ is coming back before or after the millennium, whatever that is. So post-millennialism is considered a really optimistic view of the future of the earth. And there's different flavors of it, but here's basically what it holds to. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. We kind of talked about this already, uh, where God rules over the hearts of his people. So we've talked about that. But here's what post-millennialism held to, holds to, that God's gospel is going to go out and spread over the face of the earth, but it is going to be incredibly successful. Right? That as people go out and preach as the gospel goes to nations, perhaps the majority of people on earth, by God's grace, are going to become Christians. They're going to hear and believe. And there will, so there will come a time when, when, and that is how Christ's kingdom spreads over the earth and his influence grows. Because more and more and more people become Christians and are living under the reign of Christ. Right? That, that was the, that's why it's very optimistic, right? It's the sense that like, Christ will conquer through means of the gospel being preached. And the idea is that this will affect, by necessity, a transformation in culture. I mean, could you imagine if the majority of people, like, in America, are in our government, and our leaders, and people who run businesses, and art, you know, imagine all these people were submitted faithful believers in Christ. Imagine if every aspect of society was was, was uh, changed by biblical thinking, right? Art, music, government, business, education, international relations, even the laws that we make, right? The blessings of the gospel will be felt throughout the world. And so there's this idea that this would, this would bring in a golden era of peace and prosperity. In this way, Christ subdues every kingdom on earth. And so... So there, there's some variety in how this works out, but in some sense, whether that's, whether that's a gradual thing or whether it, it happens at a certain point, but the millennium would therefore be this golden age of peace and prosperity, okay, where, where maybe lifespans would increase, where there would be great peace. You know, it's described, right, this idea um, that, uh, that there would be no more war, right, because nations wouldn't go to war because they would be Christian, right? Now, um, now there's different versions of this. There was an earlier version of this, the the, the Puritans, a lot of the Puritans held, Jonathan Edwards held, that this would occur mainly by the work of the Holy Spirit and would be a natural outcome of gospel success, right? But more modern versions um, still champion that, but some think that there needs to be an active help to this transformation of society. So you may have heard of theonomy or Christian reconstruction, maybe those you've heard or not. Theonomy is this idea that like all laws and governments should be based on basically the laws of Israel in some sense. That that's God's perfect law so why would a nation have laws that are better or different than that? So, um, Or that Christian reconstruction, right? Um, this idea that society should be shaped around Christian lines. So there's different flavors of it and some say, you know, we need to preach the gospel and see people transformed but we also need to do work of transforming society. And of course there's kind of liberal visions of that and conservative versions of that. Um, and so that's kind of this idea. And it, 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 was, it is kind of opti- considered an optimistic view because the world will get better. That's the expectation, right? Things are going to get – no matter how they look right now, God will save his elect, the gospel will go out, and the world will, will be better. So, the, so, uh, many, so some adherents, some people who, who hold this view, many Puritans and post-Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge – B.B. Warfield, if you guys know R.C. Sproul, he held this view. Um, Doug Wilson, uh, and I have Christian Reconstructionists and Theonomists. Can I say, this view is actually, it, it kind of um, is on the ascendant a little bit, because honestly, look around our world today, we see less and less and less Christian influence in our society. And, and some of you lived you know, longer ago when you felt like America was more governed by Christian principles. And you're like, man, Things were better, right? <laughs> you ever have conversations with people who are, who are older and they said, yeah, this is a different nation and it wasn't a Christian nation, but there were, it was more guided by Christian ideals. And so th- there is a sense of like almost trying to reclaim that. So it, it is having a little bit of an ascendancy. So what, what is the draw to this view? Why does it draw people? Well, here's a couple of reasons, I think. Well, it's optimistic. I already mentioned that. Uh, it seems to make sense of a golden age in world history. Right, as predicted in the Old Testament, that doesn't seem to quite, you know, reach the the uh, eternal state. So, I mean, there's there's passages talking about how, you know, there will be a time when those who live to hundred are considered young. That, that you know, that there will be peace among the nations. That will will we'll, uh, we'll, will break down, you know, swords and spears are broken down into uh, plowshares and pruning hooks. will right? be world peace. So it, it seems to make sense of those passages that are like, it's not now and it's not quite perfect, but it's better. Um, it demonstrates how the kingdom of Christ gradually overtakes the kingdom of this world, right? You hear about the parable of the mustard seed, right? It starts off small and eventually takes over the whole world. And that's, it says, they, they say this is this best explains that idea of the kingdom taking over the world. And I just mentioned this a second ago, you know that some have experienced a largely Christian society have seen its blessings, you know, not that it's perfect, right, but you know we're experiencing an increasingly secular society, it kind of stinks you know <laughs> you know there's it's getting it's gonna be harder in, in in- many ways you know so you could you could easily imagine why people would be drawn to this idea but there the, but uh here's some critiques of it um I think. There's, there's much you could say, but I'll, I'll just hit a couple of things. It seems that like the New Testament uniformly is wanting to prepare Christians for suffering, not that things are going to get better. Right? In every age, there is great persecution and rejection, not increasing acceptance, increasing dominion over the world. So the pattern that, that we see is not that we're going to be in charge of everything in the way things are now, but that we're going to remain exiles and sojourners. The parable of the weeds, I think, is informative. Right? It's this idea that you know that the Lord's crop and the weeds are going to grow up at the same time and they won't be separated until a great harvest. Right? So there's this idea that the world and the church, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Christ, are going to grow up alongside each other until the end of the age. And there's not going to be a time where one overtakes the other until Christ returns. Christ warns that the way to life is narrow and few find it. Right? Um, and the genuine believers, it seems like, are never really going to be in the majority. Matthew seven thirteen and 14 says that. I mean, Jesus even says in Luke eighteen eight, he says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Like, the insinuation is not very much. So it, it seems like when we read Scripture, there is not this expectation that the majority of the world will be Christians, but it is a narrow way and a small gate. I will say also this, history is instructive that Christians don't really do well with secular power um, throughout, throughout history. We haven't really done well. And I mean by that, uh, it hasn't been good often for the church. We look at long, uh, especially in the Middle Ages and uh, things that went on with the Roman Catholic Church as well, like when, when, when the church and the state, when, when that merges to become a thing, it, it oftentimes corrupts the gospel, it, it, it changes our mission, it, it, it oftentimes is not done well. For Christians and for the Church, I'll say this also that at times, if the idea is, is that you know, if we think our responsibility is to shape culture and change culture, and you know, and take hold of government and take and take hold of the arts and everything else, you can see very easily that creeping in and becoming our focus and becoming our mission—we're you know, trying to change the world along biblical lines—it can easily replace the task of proclaiming the gospel, you know, and living living that way. So, and that this has happened, you know, both on the political left and political right. Um, and so I think that's a dangerous thing. It can be. So that is just a quick summary of post-millennialism. I mean, there's a part of me, like I said, all of these I've wanted to hold at least at one time or not. <laughs> I remember reading a book, on it was called Three Views on the End Times and Beyond, and after every, it had like it had a chapter about each view, and then it had three rebuttals, or it had rebuttals from people who had the other view. And each time I read a chapter, I'm like, ooh, I think that's right. <laughs> you know, that sounds good. And then I'd read the, oh, okay, I guess it has problems. And then I'd read the next one, like, oh, this one's right. Because they, 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 they all have good arguments. And so um, there are things to like about it, but I think there, it has more problems than solutions personally. Uh, the second view that we 'll talk about, and then we'll uh, we 'll be able to take a break here in about fifteen minutes, is uh, dispensational premillennialism. So you 'll see that that 's in yellow uh, on your sheet. We talked about dispensationalism a bit last week as well. So this is a view that Christ will return in two stages: first, secretly, in order to rapture his church from the earth. This is followed by seven years of tribulation during which the Antichrist rises to power. After seven years of tribulation, Christ returns again, this time visibly and in glory to establish an earthly millennial kingdom in which Israel plays a central role. So this is a species of premillennialism, but it is called sometimes pre-tribulational millennialism uh, because in this view, Christ not only returns before the millennium, but also before something called the Great Tribulation. So if you look on your yellow sheet there, you see that there's kind of two instances where Christ uh, returns. So you have the church age, then you have believers being raptured, caught up, meeting Christ in the air. Um, uh, So so he's not seen uh, in this this return. He he takes them to be with him in heaven, and then he returns with his believers uh, at the first resurrection at the end of seven-year tribulation. So, uh, this view is unique to dispensationalism, uh, and is based upon a, uh, an interpretation of the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. And I'll, I'll come back to that in just a minute. But in this view, uh, God's attention is focused on the church right now. So, what, what God, so right now, what, this is called the church age, uh, and God's focus is on the church. Uh, but the church age will suddenly end at the rapture, the, God, the God's plan for the church will end, he'll bring his people, and then God will turn his attention back to Israel because the belief is that there are unfulfilled promises to restore the kingdom to Israel, to restore Israel to the land, for the temple to be rebuilt in glory, for the Davidic king to reign on the throne in Jerusalem. These weren't fulfilled literally, so there, there must be a time for them to be fulfilled. And that time is in the millennium. So, so in this sense, God is kind of ending one program or com- bringing it to completion, that with his church. And he's returning to and completing uh, a program for Israel. We talked last week about how there's, uh, under dispensationalism, there remains uh, a distinction between Israel and the church that, or that uh, continues even to this day. So um, the idea of the, of the rapture. As it is described in this sensational view, uh, comes from 1 Thessalonians 4:16 and 17, um, that we who are alive who are left uh, after the resurrection will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll always be with the Lord. This idea, rapture, means caught up. We're taken up by the Lord. So in this view, um, believers uh, return with Christ to heaven when He returns. And so they'll not undergo the great tribulation. I will say there is a view called mid-tribulation where the rapture doesn't happen until the middle of the seven years. But during, the, but during this seven-year period, after the church has been raptured, whoever is left on the earth, which initially is all unbelieving people, undergo great tribulation. It's a time of wrath where God is pouring out. Um, wrath on the world and so we see this described in revelation through the you know the seven cups and bowls and seals um, but during this time is when the antichrist comes to the fort comes to power uh, and then uh, god as i say, god returns his attention to national israel so i won't go through all all that happens during this this period but it is not a good period uh, in this view so christ returns at the end of seven years with his saints and a couple things happen then. That is when we read about Revelation 20, the millennium, where God bind, Christ binds Satan and conquers the Antichrist and the false prophets. And he, re- and he resurrects saints um, to live with him and establish a millennial kingdom on the earth that will last for a thousand years. Uh, as I mentioned, this is the earthly fulfillment of the kingdom of God long, prom- long ago promised and prophesied. But it is a uniquely Jewish time, and that's what's unique to this view. It is a uniquely Jewish millennium. So Jesus rules from Jerusalem. Israel is restored to the promised land and the boundaries that were set earlier on. The temple is rebuilt and sacrifices are offered, though they are not not to atone for sin because Christ has already accomplished that, but rather they're more a memorial uh, in reverence to Christ having done that. So this is considered, the millennium then is an earthly reality where Christ is ruling over the world um, with his resurrected, glorified saints on the earth, um, but also the nations. And so it will, I guess, be comprised of people who are not believers in Christ, um, but are still living under his rule. So, this is, so the, the millennium then becomes a time where Christ's kingdom comes to earth, and he rules over the nations. as talked about in Psalm chapter 2. He rules with a rod of iron. So even those who aren't believers in Christ are still living under his rule. Of course, this, this, and during this time, Satan is bound um, and so uh, but at the end of this millennium, at the end of this thousand years, Satan is released from prison he 's able to gather forces um, from, the, from nations, from unbelievers, and they come to wage war against christ and that 's when the last battle happens, and Christ finally and fully puts down um, Satan uh, so a- after that last rebellion is put down, um, there is the, the last or the second resurrection, uh, and then that 's when Jesus judges everyone, and the end, the eternal state comes about. that was I know I said a lot there, so that, that was kind of a summary of the main points. And there, more can be said, but so who are some adherents? Who are some people who, who hold this? I mentioned last week John Nelson Darby and C. I. Schofield, who helped uh, popularize this. Uh, Charles Ryrie and John Wolverton. I could mention some other guys, but really Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, those 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 guys. Uh, John MacArthur. I mentioned Tim LaHaye, David Jeremiah, uh, Greg Kokel. Um There's I could name more and more people, but there's many fundamentalists, uh, evangelicals, charismatic churches, um, a lot of Baptist churches uh, hold to this view. So what's the draw? What are some reasons why people are drawn to dispensational premillennialism? So like I said earlier on, I think all of these views have good reasons to believe as well. So one, I I think it's, it's a good story. There's a reason why the Left Behind books sold millions upon millions of copies. I mean, it is an engaging story, a lot of drama to it. So, um, just purely on that level, um, I think it's a cohesive story. It's, all right, it, it all fits together. Right? Uh, I think it seeks to make sense of all the various strands of prophetic data. Okay, you know, rather than, you know, trying to say, okay, well, we have all of this prophetic data. You know, we want to make sense of it, and so this actually tries to fit everything in a way that is organized and makes sense. There's, there's many other ways that we could draw, but I want to talk briefly about some critiques of it. So at, all the things that I mentioned last week kind of still hold true. Uh, I talked about how dispensationalism as, an, as a scheme of interpretation, I think, has some faults to it. I think uh, interpreting Scripture literally whenever possible, I think, is very difficult to do consistently, and I think it ends up having some errant... Um, Results, particularly as it results from prophecy. So uh, I think if the interpretive methods are errant, so are the conclusions. Likewise, uh, I mentioned last week that the idea of the ongoing division between Israel and the church I think is contrary to the overwhelming message in Scripture that there is one people of God united in Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile, but one in Christ. Uh, I think the idea of a Jewish-focused earthly millennium Uh, with the restoration of Old Covenant symbols and types, which were only supposed to point forward in the first place, is actually taking a step backwards in redemptive history. They were only supposed to point, there were shadows and types looking forward to Christ, but now that he has come, now that Christ has fulfilled the role of the temple, now that the church is the temple of God and we are being built brick by brick by his spirit, there is no need for a temple to be rebuilt. There's no need for... Sacrifices to be offered in Jerusalem, but we discussed some of that last week. So a couple other things. One is, and I, this is again the idea of tribulation. I think Scripture consistently points towards we are going to face tribulation, and not just like for a period, but all the way up until Christ returns. There is going to be consistent and increasing tribulation until the end. Matthew 24 talks about. So we're to be prepared for it and not expect that we're going to be raptured and taken away before it gets here. I think our expectation should be that we, that we should see um, persecution and even the church will be around when the Antichrist comes. So I think there are, there are texts that are offered to say, like Revelation 3.10, that they'll be kept from tribulation, but those are not convincing that Jesus will remove the entire world of Christians prior to his return. Um. I think the second coming is, it's one event. Like it's consistently talked about in Scripture as one event that's coming. I mean, right after, right after Jesus ascended, it's like they said, in the same way you saw him go, so he will return. It is a visible thing. Time and time again, it's called the day of the Lord. Uh, it is a day of glory. It is a day where Jesus is visible. It's a day of salvation, a day of judgment. Um, but we don't see this, this indication that it's two second comings, or you know, one second coming in two phases. That is, doesn't really have any precedent in church history. So it's a very new view, and I think that puts a lot of weight on it having to be proved. And I, I just don't think there's a very good case. I think Jesus comes back one time and it is a day of, uh, where he's visible and glorious in judgment and salvation. And then lastly, I want to point to this. Idea of where does the idea of a pre tribulational rapture come from? Where does the seven years of tribulation come from? Uh, it actually comes from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Uh, the the pre tribulational view is dependent. Upon this, this interpretation, I'm not going to, sadly, I don't have time to crack it open and read it through and do exegesis because we do need to move on. But I do want to say that this is a, a really unique passage. And I, it's four verses and I encourage you to read it. But it is difficult to interpret it. There's a lot of phrases um, that are used that are, that, that are in dispute. First of all, like what do the 70 weeks even mean? Is it literal weeks? Are they years? Are they time periods? There's this discussion of putting an end to sin. There's a the talk of an anointed one. There's talk of a prince. There's talk of a desolator. There's talk of an abomination and an end to a sacrifice and a strong covenant. Like, lots of phrases that you're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Like, all to say that there, is, there, are, there are lots of interpretations for it, but it's not an easy passage. It's not like, oh, obviously this is what it's talking about, it's not super clear. And there are, there are many different views. There are some who hold that, um, that this passage is, was fulfilled in what's called the Maccabean Revolution, where the temple was cleansed. This is prior to Jesus even came on the scene. There are some who hold that these passages look forward to and find fulfillment in Christ, and perhaps even the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. There are some who say this, this passage speaks of the Antichrist. I mean, just to say those are all very, very different <laughs> interpretations because it's very difficult to know how to hold what what, what this view what this this passage is, is precisely talking about doesn't mean we can't know but what i i do think is is that that every other millennial view has interpretations for this passage but none of them are dependent upon this passage which means, oh, this could be a couple of different things. Maybe this is referring to the Maccabean Revolution after Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig on the altar and they came back and cleansed the temple. Maybe that's what I was talking about. Maybe it's looking forward to Christ. You know, but, um, but no view stands or falls on your interpretation of this, except for dispensationalism. A pre-tribulational view of the millennium stands or falls on a very unique interpretation of Daniel 9. 24 through 27. And maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. I will say that. But the fact that it all kind of hinges on, on, a, that, on a unique interpretation of a very disputed passage should give us some pause. Um, so there's much more we could talk, and I know that, that there's probably questions you, know, you have specifically about this. Write those down. There's many things we didn't cover in those two views, post-millennialism and, and dispensational pre-millennialism. Um, there's a lot to talk about both of those, but we are going to pause. So if you have questions about those particularly, write them down. And we'll talk about them in the Q&A. We're going to take a quick five-minute break so you can stretch your legs, do whatever you need to do. Then we're going to come back and talk about two more views and then have some time for some Q&A. Sound good? Great. All right, grab your seat. We're
0: going to dive back in. Um, if you have your colored diagram, um, we talked about post-mill, right? The idea that we're in the church age, the millennium, is a gradual increase of, of the influence of the church through the gospel prior to the coming of Christ. So Christ will return to an earth that has in that millennial um, state where Christ where the Christians in the church are, are reigning and ruling. Pre tribulational premillennialism, that dispensational perspective in the yellow there, the idea that we are in the church age, that Christ will return. There will be a secret rapture of believers, followed by seven years of tribulation. Christ will return again and then will be that thousand year millennial reign followed by the resurrection of unbelievers and judgment. So um, dispensational premillennialism pictures two separate returns of Christ. We're now going to be there in the orange classic or historic pre-millennialism. If you look there on the diagram, the idea that um, the church age will lead into a time of increasing tribulation. Christ will return and catch up believers in the air, but rather than return to heaven for a seven-year interlude, um, believers will be, be caught up With Christ, meet him in the air, so to speak, and then return back down to earth for the millennial reign, followed by judgment and the eternal state. So, to summarize this position, classic premillennialism says that Christ will come back before the millennium. That the present church age will continue as it nears the end. There will be this time of great tribulation and suffering on the earth. After the time of tribulation, at the end of the church age, Christ is going to return, establish a millennial kingdom. And at that point, believers who have died will be raised from the dead. Their bodies will be reunited with their spirit, um, which is the expectation of all um, all Christians. Is that is that our spirits will one day be reunited with their bodies, with live in a resurrected uh, state as Christ was after his resurrection. Um, these believers will reign with Christ on earth um, for a thousand years. Now, it's important to note that that many. Um, classic premillennialists would not take that thousand years uh, literally um, many of the uh, of the figures and symbols um, in the scriptures are are uh, fulfilled uh, figuratively or symbolically so so it could very well just have been written as a really long time um, and that's Bible still is the word of God Bible still is true and and fulfilled fully and truly and accurately um, even if it's it 's not Um, A literal 1,000 year period. Um, Christ is going to reign in his resurrected body on the earth. Um, Believers who are on the earth that have been raised back to life in their resurrected bodies will reign with Christ um, alongside of him. Unlike um, pre-trib premillennialism or dispensational premillennialism, the yellow, this 1,000 year millennial reign with Christ and believers, there's no distinction made between Israel and the church. Um, The church is not raptured Out Prior to um, that time of of tribulation, there's one unified people of God um, reigning with Christ. Satan um, will be bound during that time, as as Matt read earlier from from Revelation 20. He will have no influence on the earth. During that time of the millennium, there will be many unbelievers that will come to Christ. There will be a period of, of peace and order throughout the earth. At the end of the millennium... Um, Satan is going to be released as, as we read there in, in Matthew 20, he will join with the remaining unbelievers, those that, that lived under the reign of Christ during that millennium, but never were converted. So there will be unbelievers that will outwardly submit to Christ as reigning King. But when Satan is released, they'll join with him. There'll be a final battle and who's going to win Jesus. All right. Um, good Sunday school answer. Jesus is going to win in the end. Um, and and Christ and Christians will will have a final victory. Then will come the resurrection of unbelievers, the final judgment of both believers and unbelievers, and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. So you can see that laid out there in orange. One return of Christ. There is in a sense two resurrections, or two at least one the resurrection of believers before the millennium, and then the resurrection of unbelievers after the millennium. As far as adherence, people throughout history that have held to this view, George Ladd, Charles Spurgeon, Francis Schaeffer, in more modern, uh, more modern times, uh, Wayne Grudem, John Piper, D.A. Carson, Millard Erickson, all theologians that would hold to this view, and many uh, Calvinistic Baptists, Reformed Baptists, as well as conservative evangelicals. Um, you put uh, Grudem, Piper, and Carson together, and tell me that they hold to any view. I'm going to be listening um, because those are uh, heroes of, of of mine and 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 um, pastors and men of God that that um, I I find affinity with much of what they believe. What is the draw of historic premillennialism? Um, as Matt said, it does have historical roots going back um, as far as the early church. So. Um, uh, there was a period you know, where amillennialism uh, sort of was the reigning, but, but at least historically there is precedent for it throughout the, the, the Christian um, church. Um, the, the three, three other draws that I can give you. First of all, I think it does provide a clear, consistent account and timeline of Revelation 20, as well as other key passages. So the Great Tribulation in Matthew 14... The coming of Christ and the resurrection in First Thessalonians four that Matt read earlier, um, the rebellion and man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians two. Um, I, I think that the, the, the uh, pre-trib, um, excuse me, the um, historic premillennialism I, I think gives a, a, a clear, consistent account, sort of a timeline, you could say. Secondly, I think it upholds the unity of God's people as Israel and the Church. There are some similarities. Right with with dispensational premillennialism, but the the biggest concern that I would have um, and and what I think is a draw to uh, premillennialism is is that it maintains the unity of of what, as Matt articulated, what we believe is the clear um, unifying of of, of Jew and Gentile through Christ. Um, Not only does it uphold the unity of Israel and the church, but as I said earlier, there's only one return of Christ. And so whereas... Uh, dispensationalism uh, really sees two separate returns. Um, premillennialism would, would see one return of Christ, uh, which I think is a draw for its simplicity, for the clarity with which you know, uh, New Testament passages seem to only indicate one return. Um, thirdly, I, I think a draw of disposition is that it deals with the reality of suffering and persecution that Christians experience, that we see in Scripture, that we've seen throughout history and that is predicted at the end of the age, that there's no reason really to believe that Christians will secretly be raptured out of the earth and avoid the uh, tribulation. Um, and so I think I think the draw of this position is that we do suffer, we will suffer. Uh, that is our experience, and, and that is what Scripture seems to indicate. Um, what are some critiques of classic pre-millennialism? Um, I think from a hermeneutical perspective, and again principles of interpretation, there is much in the Book of Revelation. Uh, many spiritual realities between the first and second coming of Christ, the church age, that Revelation describes, that, that are spiritual realities in the book of Revelation, things that, that are happening right now in the church age. And so it is possible that the millennium is not a future physical reality on earth, as, as premillennialism would, would say, but that it is perhaps, that as amillennialism will, will say, as we'll hear in a minute, that the millennium is a spiritual reality between the first and second coming. And so one of the critiques of, of premillennialism is, is that there are there are things that are figurative, figuratively and spiritually being fulfilled right now in the church age, and perhaps the millennium is one of them. The second critique, um, I, I think that a case can be made. You could look at, at, for instance, John five twenty-eight and 29, Acts 24, 15, that talk about the resurrection of the just and the unjust and give the impression that they happen at the same time. So premillennialism would say that, that Christians are resurrected first, joined with Jesus in the millennium, and it's not until the end of that period that non believers are resurrected. And so, so a critique would be, does the New Testament give us the impression that those things happen together? Thirdly, a third critique, some would say that it's hard to believe that Jesus would be um, reigning on earth as king, that uh, believers would be in their resurrected body, and unbelievers could somehow exist on the earth in their regular bodies, while Jesus and his people are in, in resurrected in glory, how could those two things be happening at the same time? How could non-believers exist in that reality? Furthermore, how could they not come to Christ in that reality? So that would be a critique. A fourth critique is that, well, I guess I kind of alluded to this, but maybe I got ahead of myself. fourth critique is that if, if Satan is bound, as, as, we, as we read in Revelation 20, if Christ is reigning as king, how could people stand in their sinful rebellion... During the millennium, how could they they stand to, to in defiance of Jesus, join with Satan for a final battle at the end? Wouldn't they Wouldn't they, in a sense, be converted and come to Christ? So those are those are some critiques. So um, most of you came tonight for two reasons: one, because you heard there was going to be better snacks this week than last week, and two, because you really just want to know what Matt and I believe. So I am presenting this position. Um, because I, I can make a biblical case for, for this perspective. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I can see a biblical basis for either historic premillennialism or amillennialism that Matt is about to present. And kind of like he said when he read that that book on different views, kind of depending upon who I'm listening to or what I'm reading, you can sort of think, ah, you know, premillennialism, you know, that that makes more biblical sense, or ah, amillennialism makes more biblical sense. I'm going to do my best to present a case for premillennialism, and then I'll sit down, and Matt's going to get up, and I'll probably think, yeah, he he's 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 making a good point, you know. So um, either one of the last two, the orange and the green, either one of those I think fit into my overall theological framework and the overall theological framework that you'll find in our expanded doctrinal statement. Um, principles of hermeneutic. Hermeneutics, as I said, do allow for a spiritual or symbolic understanding of the millennium. So I have no problem, from a hermeneutical perspective, that there are aspects of prophecy that are fulfilled um, spiritually, symbolically, not fulfilled physically on the earth. And so, if the millennium is one of those things that does nothing to undermine my understanding of the authority of Scripture, does nothing to undermine my authority of how prophecy is is um, interpreted. Um, I do think um, millennialism is is appealing. For the sake, and I'm sure Matt will say this in a minute, that it is simple, it's straightforward. You know, basically amillennialism says Jesus returns and then the world is over, right? It's just very simple. Jesus comes back and then there's the end. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I do not find biblical credibility to postmillennialism. I do not think the New Testament gives us the impression that things are going to continually get better, and the gospel will will reign and and exercise influence both over uh, not just the church but over government. And Christ is going to return to a world that is already following Him. I do not see the biblical basis for that. And as as we clearly outlined last week, I, I, I would have the elders would have some significant concerns with dispensational premillennialism, uh, for the fact that it, it 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 is driven, I believe, at least partially, motivated by a desire to to um, eliminate tribulation for Christians, which I don't think is biblical. And and secondly, the biggest concern is is this idea that Israel and the church are separated, that that Jesus, uh, God has a plan for the church. The church will be um, removed from the earth and then he'll kind of finish his plan for Israel. I think Israel and the church culminate and find unity in the cross. So let me give you three main reasons that I believe offer strong support for premillennialism. Um, Am I a premillennialist? Again, um, I'm okay with a little bit of ambiguity. I I hold to either premillennialism or amillennialism. Um, And at this point in time, I have not felt strongly convicted to say this is definitively my position. But three reasons that I think are strong support for premillennialism. First is that, as I indicated before, I think it provides a clear and consistent account of Revelation 20. I think what you would call a natural reading of Revelation 20. Um, there are several aspects of Revelation 20 that I think are, are understood um, clearly by premillennialism. The first is that uh, the resurrection of believers will, will receive glorified bodies and reign with Christ, not just describing their uh, eternal life as, as believers in heaven before the final resurrection. But I, but I think Revelation 20 seems to indicate um, that they are reigning not just with Jesus in heaven, but reigning in glorified bodies. Uh, secondly, we read in, in Revelation 20 about the binding, the shutting, the sealing of Satan so that he cannot deceive the nations. Um, the Millennium pictures this total removal of Satan's influence, his ability to deceive. It doesn't seem to me to be a fully accurate picture of the church age. Uh, there are descriptions in the New Testament of Satan continuing to work in the, the lives of, of people on earth. And what the Millennium describes seems to be a, a more complete um, of removal of Satan's influence. Uh, thirdly, in terms of how it provides a clear and consistent account of Revelation 20, um, I think if you just look at the chronology, some of the chronological uh, events in Revelation 20 and other chapters um, seem to better fit with the pre-millennial um, perspective, namely that there's a time of great tribulation and persecution that happens before the millennium. Then Christ returns, Satan is bound, there's this millennial rule, and then you have a, a release of Satan in a final battle, followed by by final judgment and the new creation. And so the timeline of of an increasing time of tribulation, then the millennium, and then a final battle, seems to better fit um, in the pre-millennial perspective. So there's, there's, that's kind of the first one, just a, a clear and consistent timeline, a natural reading of the events of Revelation 20. Uh, secondly, um, there are several texts in the Old Testament that don't seem to fit either with our current state, which is the fallen world, but they also don't seem to fit with the new heavens and the new earth in eternity. And so, uh, again, sadly, for sake of time, um, we won't look at these, but if you want to write down Psalm 72, 8 to 14, Isaiah 11, 2 to 9, Isaiah 65, verse 20, Zechariah 14, 6 to 21, Um, You read through some of those passages and and it becomes difficult to to imagine, wait a minute, is this describing the fallen world or is this describing the new heavens and the new earth? And the premillennial perspective says, well, there's this in-between period. Right? Where, where there, Christ is reigning, there's, the, the resurrected bodies are there, but there's still sin, there, there's, not everyone is under his rule, and, and maybe that makes a, a better, better sense of those passages. Um, passages where we see what you could say is the, the global reign of Christ in glory, but the global reign of Christ in glory is still happening in a fallen world where there's sinful people and needy people, and we can say, okay, maybe that's what Revelation 20 is talking about, this period of, of millennium, um, Thirdly, so one of the biggest critiques of, of the pre-millennial, premillennialism and a critique by the amillennialists is that um, how can fallen sinners and glorified believers live together on earth? Doesn't it seem strange that Jesus is going to return in glory, he's going to reign, believers will be resurrected, and yet other people are just going to be living in their regular bodies and, 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 and not be converted and not have their, their glorified state? Um, yes, it is strange but that doesn't mean that God couldn't do it. Okay? So so I, I don't think simply saying it's hard to imagine is a reason that it couldn't happen. Jesus, after all, um, received his resurrected body and lived on earth for 40 years. He lived on earth in a resurrected body. In fact, Matthew 27, says that at the time of his resurrection, other people were raised from the dead, uh, um, raised into their glorified bodies, and lived on earth um, during that time. So so they were people that... that were on earth when Jesus was in his resurrected body that were not converted. And so I think it's possible for for that state of affairs to happen in the millennium. Um, You may say, well, wait a minute. If Satan is bound for a thousand years during the millennium, how is it that, that sinful people who have not yet received their glorified bodies, how is it that they wouldn't submit to the reign of Jesus, right? If Jesus is there in his glorified state, and Satan is bound, how could they not be converted? How could they not come to Christ? I think ultimately we can answer that just by saying that the root of sin is the human heart. Right? The root of sin is not ultimately the work of Satan. Satan blinds us and tempts us and manipulates us. Um, the root of sin is not ultimately the absence of God. Even in the presence of, of the glorified Son of God, people can, can continue in sinful rebellion. And, and so uh, for those reasons, I, I think I can make a strong biblical case. I'm very comfortable um, with the the, the historic pre millennial perspective. Um, I think it fits with the biblical data. Um, if you look at our expanded doctrinal statement, it, it fits with that as well. So Matt's going to come now and make a case for our millennialism, um, which he's more
1: convinced of. I'm sort of in between. Hmm. But have at it, brother. Well, thank you. Um, Jesus was only in his resurrection by for 40 days, not 40 years, by the way. Oh, did I misspeak? Yeah. I apologize. <laughs> well, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, there's been times, I, I guess I read, there's a lot of guys I respect who are, who are pre mill and um, who, yeah, I read their stuff and, yeah, it makes a convincing case. But I'd like to quote the Apostle Paul he says, and now I will show you a still more excellent way. On um, <laughs> millennialism, uh, Grudem describes it as the view that there will be no literal thousand year bodily reign of Christ on earth. Prior to the final judgment in the eternal state, on this view, scriptural references to the millennium in Revelation 20 actually describe the present church age. So let me do a quick summary of what this view states. First of all, amillennialism does not really mean no millennium, so it's really kind of an unfortunate name. Uh, It just teaches the millennium of Revelation 20 is really describing right now, the time between his first and second coming. It's the present rule of Christ with his saints in heaven, and at the same time, it describes this period of right now where Satan is bound to prevent him from wholesale keeping the church from completing her mission, all right, to take the gospel to the nations. So that is kind of the general gist of how they interpret uh, the millennium. Uh, the second coming in this regard, if you look, this is the, uh, the green uh, at the bottom there. Um, the second coming is the conclusion of history. So pretty much everything uh, closes up. Uh, at the coming of Christ, including the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the final judgment, the cleansing of the earth and cosmic renewal. It all happens very quickly after Christ's return. So he is, Christ comes to bring an, this age to a close and to bring the age to come to the eternal state with no intervening period. So, uh, so there's kind of the other summary of it. Um, I will say, like as far as Revelation goes, as far as reading the book of Revelation, something that's important to understand is there. Are, if you look at, if you have an ESV Study Bible, there are multiple different ways, like, to interpret Revelation. By that I mean, like, how do you view it? Is it a straight chronological story? Um, is it to be? I mean, different people in history. Even, is this supposed to be a um, analogous to, to what's at different periods in history? Um, but uh, under this view, Revelation is really not to be read straight through as one continuing story, um, meaning starting in chapter four, the author of Revelation, John, is telling the story of Christian suffering at the hand of evil world powers, culminating in the Antichrist, culminating in the Christ returning, but it's really a cycle. There's, there's multiple cycles, so it seems like it's telling the story of, of, of Christians suffering, undergoing persecuting uh, persecution, being faithful. And, then, you know, and God pouring out judgment, preparing to send his son, and then Jesus comes and puts things to right. But it's the same story of the coming of Christ told in a few different vignettes. So rather than reading it straight through, it's almost like when you're watching football and somebody like, I don't know, Tom Brady, throws a, um, a, a spiral, a touchdown in the end zone, and it's beautiful, and they show multiple instant replays. And it's like, you know, here's from this view, and here's behind, and here's... The, and they're just showing the same scene from different perspectives to draw out different things. It's similar to that. And it does seem as though Jesus returns several times in the book of... I mean, he retur- the return of Christ is described several different places in Revelation. Eight, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. No. Chapter 16, verses 7 through 20. <laughs> Through two. Uh, I, don't, I actually don't know when it ends because I put a 2 and not a 20. Um, all that to say, there are multiple places where it seems like that there, the Christ coming is described multiple times. But sometimes the focus is on wrath. Sometimes it's on salvation. Earlier on when I read this passage, it said the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. That's, that's right in the middle. That's right in Revelation 11. So it seems like um, they're using a lot of different Old Testament uh, language to describe uh, what's going on. But with each cycle, and by the way, this is called recapitulation or progressive parallelism because theologians have to create annoyingly big words to keep their jobs. Um, so uh, we, the cycles kind of intensify throughout the book. But to read that, but the idea is if you read the book of Revelation in a straight rigid, linear fashion, it becomes almost incomprehensible. So um, some some classic adherents uh, to this view, um, uh, Augustine, uh, and then some guys who maybe are not as notable as the premillennialists, but Herman Bavinck, Louis Burkoff, Anthony Hochma, more modern guys, uh, Michael Horton, Sam Storms. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church does hold to this because of Augustine. Uh, Many confessionally reformed denominations hold to this view. So what, is, what are some draws to this view? Um, well, I think that it's the, his, the history of it. It has a long history. I mean, it's been for, for a very long time in church history. This was the majority view, so that gives some people some, um, some comfort. Um, it avoids some of the difficulties associated with an earthly millennium. I mean, to mention some things that, yeah, when you think through an earthly millennium, it can be kind of weird if you're thinking through implications. And so it kind of avoids that. Uh, like historic premillennialism, uh, it understands that Revelation, uh, the tribulation and persecution that Christians suffer is not just for one generation. It's not like the book of Revelation is really kind of like mostly for a generation that is way in the future. Um, but it's meaningful in, in uh, throughout all generations. All Christians can gain courage and hope, and it's, it's a, a blueprint for how we can undergo uh, hardship and even be prepared to suffer from the Antichrist, um, but know that we have hope in Christ as, as overcoming our every enemy. And lastly, just the simplicity. I mean, look at that chart. I mean, it's it's just so simple. It's like one thing, right? So if you like it simple, okay, that, um, yeah. So there's not so many lines that are confusing. It's just, you know, stuff happens now, Jesus comes back, we're done. All right, so... But there are some critiques of it, right? So some say that there is, and to mention this, I won't spend a lot of time, but there is a biblical warrant to anticipate a time that is better than the church age, like better than right now, but not quite perfect. And you drew out some passages there, and it seems like there is something, there could be another time uh, in between those. Um, uh, The the other idea is how how can Satan be bound, right? So he's not deceiving the nations and at the same time be the prince of this world, the god of this age, the prowling lying, seeking those whom he may devour. I mean, it's like, how do you reconcile those two ideas? Uh, The the second thing, I just just talked about this idea of recapitulation, that, you know, the revelation is really a series of cycles describing the return of Christ to overcoming enemies. Well, if you can say, if you can prove that's false, and that's not actually how revelation should be read, well, then this kind of falls flat. So um, I'll, I'll pause there and say every one of these views has questions that are hard to answer, or has problems. That's why we haven't solved it in 2,000 years. All right. So I, I want to hold things, you know, firmly but humbly, and I think we should all kind of have that when it comes to things like this. So, so now a case for 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 the amillennial view. I will say this is my view. I, I do hold it, um, and as, as I agree with everything. You know, Amen. Everything Tim said about how you know within our doctrinal statement, these two views kind of fit, uh, fit well, this premillennial and amillennial view. Um, so I have opportunity you know, to, to teach on this, and I'll present my own view, but this is not, as we said, the view of the elders or of Living Hope Church. Um, but here, here's a case for the amillennial view. The first is this, is the idea of two ages. So the New Testament, I think, gives us a model for how to think about uh, the present and the future. It's a formulation laid down by Jesus in the Gospels and repeated by Paul and the author of Hebrews. It's sometimes called the two-age model. Jesus speaks of this age and the age to come. Does that sound familiar? You read in scripture? You know, for example, you know, if you commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you'll not, you'll not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Sometimes it's, it's not the only way it's talked about. Sometimes it's this age. Sometimes it's this time or this present time or this present age or this world. But it's there's a general time that's occurring right now that's contrasted with um, the age to come or the one to come or the glory to be revealed or the life to come or the city which is to come. Like I used a lot of phrases there. But just to show you, there is this consistent contrast between now and later. For example, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus says those who lose family, house, and land for the sake of the kingdom will receive many times more in this time, probably referring to life in the church, and in the age to come, eternal life. In Matthew, this is called the new world or the regeneration. Jesus talks about, uh, in Luke chapter 20, that the sons of this age marry. However, those who are worthy to attain to what he calls that age and to the resurrection, they can't die anymore. They're equal to angels. They're sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So it contrasts right now, yeah, in this age, people marry. But in the age to come, you're a son of the resurrection. You're like an angel of God. You cannot die anymore. You're not given to marriage. We talk in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Um, Paul talks about how godliness is of value both in the present life and the life to come. Satan is the god of this age, but he's not the god of the age to come. I mentioned the parable of the weeds earlier on. The parable of the weeds teaches that at the end of the age, there will be a harvest when all causes of sin and lawbreakers will be removed and tossed into the fire. The indication is that in the next age, the age to come, the righteous and the unrighteous do not coexist as in an earthly millennium. Matthew 13:36 36 through 43, if you want the reference for that. So I've given you a couple of examples. I could give more, but I just want to say that this is a pretty firm uh, principle in the New Testament, that there is this division between two ages, this age and the age to come. But, so I think that this two-age model, which Scripture gives us, doesn't really make room for another age in between the two ages, because I don't think the age to come describes the millennium. Because the age to come is described as perfect. And it's a, a, a never-ending age. And as I just said, it's not an age that the unrighteous get to be a part of. So uh, I don't think that to each model makes room for an earthly kingdom. That, 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 that is really kind of like a blending of this age and age to come. That's what an early millennium would have to be. This age will continue until Christ returns. And when he comes, he brings about the age to come. The final age, the age where death dies, where saints are glorified, and the earth is released from bondage. That seems to be um, what Scripture is pointing us to. So I think that's very good grounds for Scripture giving us an interpretive framework for how to think about and how to interpret more difficult passages, two ages. Uh, So secondly, what does Revelation 20 actually say? Because that's what we're all debating about. right? What what does Revelation 20 actually say? I read it um, verbatim earlier on. But point out that the millennium of Revelation 20 says nothing about Israel, nothing about the temple, nothing about Jerusalem or sacrifices of priests or even living a long life or an age of peace on earth or anything like that. None of that is mentioned. All of that is imported from outside of it. There's really two things that we we know about the millennium. Satan is bound for a thousand years, so he cannot deceive the nations. Of course, at the end, he'll be let out. Secondly, the souls of those who were beheaded for their faith in Christ and not submitting to the beast came to life. This is called the first resurrection. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years, presumably the same thousand years that Satan's bound. These are concurrent things. And while the rest of the dead were not resurrected resurrected until a thousand years later. So what do we do with those two things? Satan's bound, saints are resurrected. Let's deal with those. Let's start with the binding of Satan. This is probably most likely... Uh, a, re- a reference to Matthew 12:28 through 29. People come up to Jesus and they say, how are you casting out demons? And, they, and they say, you must be doing that by the devil's power, by, by the power of Beelzebub. You're casting out demons. And Jesus says, so, You know, how can Satan cast out Satan? And he says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But how can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds strong man?'" Then indeed he may plunder his house. This idea of binding the strong man, that's, Jesus, that's Jesus, what Jesus is saying. I'm binding the strong man so I can plunder his house. Jesus has bound Satan so we can no longer see the nations, so we can plunder this world, so he can send the gospel out and bring uh, his elect and he can save his people. So we shouldn't overstretch the, the discussion of what means that Satan is bound. We're actually told why Satan is bound. That he, that he cannot deceive the nations. And I think the, probably the, way, the best way to understand that is that Satan is restricted. The gospel will go out to the nations, and Satan cannot prevent it. God will save his people. Satan cannot unite all the nations of the world. Why, why wouldn't he do that? If he, if he knows this is the case, why is it, you know, we've seen persecution pop up in areas of the world for a period of time. But the gospel just keeps on going that Satan does not have the ability to raise up all the armies of the world and crush the church or completely smash all evangelistic efforts. Right? So he, he, he still is active in the world. He still has influence in the world, but he is on a leash. So that said, when he is released near the end of the age, it will get really bad for Christians, and he will make war with the saints. The Olivet Discourse says this. And Jesus even says, if that period of time wasn't shortened... The church might even cease to exist. Like the elect might be wiped out. That's how firm. So Satan is restricted from doing all that he would want to do to persecute the church. So I think that's what's meant by the binding of Satan. So what about the whole coming to life and the first resurrection? I think the first resurrection is is talking about what Christians experience at death. Sometimes called the intermediate state. When you die, if you were to die tonight in Christ... You, as Paul says, you would go to be present with the Lord. Your body would be in the grave, but your spirit would go to be present with the Lord and be with Him. Not in body, but in spirit. And this is more than just being conscious. Unbelievers, when they die, they're, they're, they're still aware, their spirit's alive, but they're not experiencing eternal life. Unbelievers do not experience the first resurrection according to Revelation 26. Now, there is no – so I think that is what's being taught by the first resurrection is that, that resurrection when you actually go to be with the Lord in spirit. Actually, it's interesting. That's called the first. There's no mention of, of a second resurrection, but it's assumed, right, because – at least right there. Um, it's applied because the resurrect, because this resurrection is called the first resurrection. It says later on that the – later on the rest the, – uh, the others are resurrected. That's the second re- uh, Resurrection. So premillennialists believe that the first resurrection is a physical resurrection at the beginning of an earthly millennium, and the second resurrection is also a physical resurrection of unbelievers this time, at the end of the millennium. However, the resurrection of the just and the unjust is separated by a thousand years. But I don't think the New Testament makes an allowance for that. John, I think I think John 5:28 and 29 actually. Is indicative of this. Do not marvel at this for an hour's coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It seems like that's one event, not separated by a thousand. There's nothing, no indication right there that some will hear now and then some will hear a millennia later. It seems like it's one event, and he says all. M- Matthew 25 it says the same thing when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. Let's see it this way. The first resurrection is for believers only. It is spiritual. It is going to, coming to life and being with Christ in that way. And the second resurrection is physical. Everyone experiences the second resurrection because that's what we talked about in John 5. Um, likewise, though, you have this idea of the second death. So there's, this, there's the first resurrection, the second resurrection. There's the first death and the second death. I think the idea, that, that, the, the idea of the death and the resurrection mirror each other. Right? In verse 6 we hear about that. The first death is physical. All of us will die. Well, unless Christ comes back, you know, but believer and unbeliever alike will experience the first death. But only unbelievers will experience the second death, which isn't physical, but really eternal and spiritual. So only believers experience the first resurrection. Only unbelievers experience the second death. So I, I think there is warrant to interpret it that way. I think it's also important because there's almost no passages in Scripture that talk about the intermediate state. They give you hope that when you die, you'll be with Christ. And I think the I think the millennium is one of the primary passages that talks about that and should give us hope. You will reign with Christ. You'll be alive with Him in glory. And it gives it gives people who are suffering for their faith, even the point of being beheaded. Um, under under um, tremendous persecution, encouragement. Lastly, and I have to go quickly here so we have time for questions. Um, I think there are problems with an earthly millennium. I, I do think there is warrant for it. I think there is a the biblical warrant for it. But I do think there are issues that have to be overcome that for me are, are, are pretty great. I, I, and I'll say this. I don't really see what an earthly millennium is for. And what I mean by that is what is actually being accomplished that needs to be accomplished that can't be done in the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus reigning physically over his enemies, or um, even his rule over an earth that, even his rule on earth isn't eternal in this view. Like, Jesus comes and he reigns for a thousand years um, physically on the earth, but ultimately the nations revolt against him. So it doesn't seem like it's, it's fully accomplishing a full victory. I mean, he, he has ultimate victory, but um, I just I don't see what it accomplishes. Secondly, the population of the millennium is kind of interesting, and, and Tim alluded to it because uh, this is this is who would be on earthy millennium, glorified believers who have experienced the first resurrection, um, and the second at that point, presumably unglorified believers, so people who made it through the second coming. Uh, who uh, weren't believers at the time but now have become believers. So then you have like glorified, perfected saints, maybe your next-door neighbor, and you are like a new believer, so you're still in your body that's going to die. But then you also have unregenerate people who survived the second coming and are still in sin. It, 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 it does seem kind of weird. But once again, that in of itself doesn't make it wrong. It just, I think it's, it's an odd thing. But I want you to imagine this, though. I imagine that, imagine you right now, your hope is that, like, you and I, we struggle with sin. We struggle with temptation in this life. And when we die, there is a, oh, I'm done. I'm done with, i do not in my resurrection body yet, but man, I am done with sin. You get to be with the Lord in heaven. And imagine, when, like, there are saints, there are fathers and mothers and friends and saints of old who are in glory right now, who are singing praises to God. They're in a place where there is no sin. No evil. Then imagine coming back to this world (laughs) and being around sinners once again. There's a part of it you'd be like, oh man. (laughs) Like, honestly, like you're actually leaving sinless perfection and coming back to a world where there eventually will be people who still hate Jesus and revolt against him, and you're still in a world that has sin in it. So to me, that seems a little backwards. Coming back to that kind of world seems like not quite glory. That we want. I would say this. A big question I have is when is the curse removed of Romans 8? Romans 8 says that when the sons of God are revealed, that is when the earth will be released from the curse. So what, what about the millennium? I think you have to come down to one, one of the following must be true about the millennium. Either glorified believers live alongside sinners on a cursed earth still, like you would resurrect and come back to a cursed earth. Or the opposite is true. That you come back, that you'll be resurrected, and live on a glorified earth, but sinners are living on a glorified earth, which to me seems impossible because Scripture seems or clearly says that the imperishable cannot inherit, or the the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. So we could say more, but I would say that that's kind of where I stand. Every view has issues. i millennialism has has issues. They all do, but um, I think that there's good reasons to hold. Uh, to this view. Uh, I'm not going to have time to go to it, but I did say, you know, it is helpful to say, well, what actually is going to happen in the next page or two on your notes is my summary of what I think how things are going to go down, the order of events, trying to hit on not necessarily everything, but the main points. So are
0: we good. good. Yeah, please do look through that, that resource there in the, in the end and sort of the the uh, unpacking of the, the the order of events. From an amillennial perspective, that should be super helpful to you. We want to just take a minute now and, uh, and see what questions you have, what well, we can clarify. Uh, I'm sure, as my chemistry uh, teacher in high school used to say, I'm sure things are clear as mud. So um, how can we be helpful? Lachelle, I did not see any questions coming in online, so we'll open it up here to the room. Um, who wants to go first? What, what can we clarify?
2: So I have, I have more than one question. Should I just do one at a time now? Do the best one. one. at a time, please. Okay. <laughs> um, so the first one is about if Satan is bound now, does that mean that before the first coming of Christ he was unbound?
3: Yes.
1: In the sense that, like, uh, there, was, there seems to have been a, a – well there, yeah, before the kingdom of God came with Christ – um, there was a considerable amount of darkness in the world being under the power of Satan. And it, you know, it, it still is to a degree, but he's restricted as the kingdom of God is spreading throughout the world. And Satan can't do anything to stop it. So that's the idea. So it's not as like – yeah. So, um, yeah, Satan is uh, – I think according to that passage I read in Matthew, Satan is restricted in, in my view right now. And, and
0: I, I think regardless of your millennial position – Christians would hold that Satan is on a leash, to use Matt's expression, right? The gospel is going out. People are coming to Christ. Satan has influence, but not total control, Mm -hmm. right?
2: And what was that reference to Matthew?
1: Let me get my notes back out. (laughs) Um, While you're looking
2: that up, I can ask my second question. Go for it. Uh, Is it possible... Now, this this one's weird. Is it possible that because God is outside of our frame of reference for time, that the millennium happens right now because he's outside of time. So we die and go to the millennia.
1: Um, the scripture does seems to indicate something that we are actually a part of. And so I don't think it's, um, another realm of, well, I guess, I mean, I would think it's describing heaven so that, so in that regard, I'd say, yes, you know, that there's a heavenly aspect to it. Christians enjoying that heavenly realm, you know, but it also has implications for earth as well. Um,
0: yeah, I think the problem with that is not that, because, yes, God's experience and comprehension of time is different than ours, which is one reason why I don't necessarily think that a millennium needs to be a literal 1,000 years, you know, of however many times the earth rotates. Uh, um, but I think your problem with that theory is not that temporally it could be going on right now, it's that spatially, so you not only have to theorize a different timeline, you have to theorize a different, like, spatial dimension where there's a millennium going on right now and I don't think scripture gives us that that biblical warrant
1: good let's go ahead it was Matthew twenty twelve twenty eight 12 28 29 was the binding of strong man
0: I'll come back to you if you have any more questions let's let somebody else take a turn who else has a question mark
4: okay bear with me for a second um where do you guys think that First um, Thessalonians 4, 14 fits? Because it's like seeming to me like stuff like this, uh, with those that have fallen asleep, um, it speaks about. It seems like depending on what version of the Bible you have, like some of the, um, like it just reads differently sometimes, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'll read it, and then I'll let Matt comment. First Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who do not have hope, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep.
1: Yeah. So I think we hold the same view on this. The uh, you know This is the the passage that talks about when Jesus returns. What will happen? Well, there are those who are asleep, and that, thats not actually talking about soul sleep, meaning like that's—that's a, that's a view that like when you die, you're just unconscious. No, I think we're with the Lord. We are present with the Lord. We're conscious. Conscious. I can't say that word. But when Jesus comes back, He's coming with His saints, and they—they will, they will resurrect first, right? and that we will, uh, and those who are on the earth will be transformed. But he's saying that, like, he's just reminded that all of God's people will be involved here. So I think the, when the rapture happens there, Jesus is coming with and for his saints. Um, we will meet Christ in the air, but then we're not going to go up. We're going to come back down with him. And I think, it's actually, I think that is actually picturing, uh, to a greater degree, what happened at the... Um, triumphal entry mm-hmm. you know, when, G- when the people went out of the city and they welcomed the king as he came into the city like that was a small picture of what's really going to happen in glory at the end so i'm not sure if i answered your question but
0: yeah and that and that, that view that matches articulated would be similar between yeah. a pre-trib and an amillennial perspective in verse 17 where it says then we, we who are alive who are left will be caught up together within the clouds to meet the lord in the air so we will always be with the lord yeah. so in other words um, as Matt said, that word in the Greek there is often used of, of like a king who would be coming into a city, as we see in Jesus' triumphal entry, that the citizens of the city would go out, meet the king, and sort of pr- pr- uh, parade with him into the city. So this idea is that the rapture is that we're we're caught up in heaven with the Lord as He's coming down, and then we descend uh, back to earth, either for a millennium or for the new heavens and the new earth.
4: Yeah. Okay. So, kind of attaching to that question a little bit. Do you guys uh, feel like Certain versions of the Bible just read more clearly than others. I mean, that's not a loaded question, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question for a follow-up. We often rely upon the ESV here at Living Hope um, because I think it's a good it's a good balance between word-for-word translation and readability. Um, I think the New American Standard has some some great advantages. A little more literal. I think the Christian Standard Bible is a, is a good balance. That even the the 1984 version of the NIV. Um, so when somebody asks me, what's the best version of the Bible, I say, what are you going to use it for? Because there are some differences. Um, Mark, can you pass the mic on? Who's next? Who else has a question? Come on guys. Don't let us off that easy. We work real hard. All right, Tim over here. Thank you.
3: Um, I don't know how to ask this, I guess. So Amillennialism millennialism is like the simple version, right? Start Middle finish, like, mm-hmm. simply, right? Um, I mean, based on your description, right, I feel like it could be, almost be the same as post-millennialism because you're building in the millennium to the current age. Mm-hmm. So I I kind of wonder what the difference is there. Mm-hmm. And I also mm-hmm. um I'm trying to find the, the right question in this. It's like, So when you talk about dispensational or pre, pre-trib – they're putting the tribulation in there when I think in in your description of amillennialism, you kind of reference it by saying, well, Satan will be unbound for a short period. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't that what we just call the tribulation? Though I get it in... I mean, I guess it's a little more specific with seven years, but you see where I'm getting at is like, they Mm -hmm. all seem to be very similar, but one's more specific.
1: Good. No, yeah, that's good. I think you had three questions there. I'll try to answer one of them. No, um, yeah, so some of that I, I tried to cover, I actually didn't get to. It. I was going to actually go through my, my, my summary, but, um, you, you, you can blame me. I probably took longer than I was supposed to. You did. Um,
3: <laughs> I'm just kidding.
1: No, so amillennialism is a version of post-millennialism, because then either Jesus is coming back before or after the millennium right. for your post. So, all, so yeah, every view has to fall there somewhere, right? Um, so yeah, it is a variety. Um, you could say post mil, post. I'm gonna say mill. I'm tired of saying millennial. Post mill is optimistic. Um, millennial is for those of us who are cringy. You know, <laughs> things are going to get worse. You know, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. So I think that that is one thing. Uh, post mill tent does have something of an earthly millennium. Yeah, it does. You know, even though it's the spiritual reign of Christ, Christ is not physically on the earth in the millennium. It is like a golden age. You know, there. So it, it is a little different, but. All as it's known now, was probably referred to as post mill at one time, but as they started thinking differently, they kind of got diverged there.
0: And, yeah, and, and I think to clarify, um, so, so these diagrams are actually taken from the ESV study Bible. Um, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, who was an editor of the ESV study Bible, has very similar diagrams. But it seems to me in the all millennial diagram, there really should be some reference to the tribulation, right? Because. Mm-hmm. An Amill perspective w- would see the Church Age, but then an increasing tribulation prior to the return of Christ, sure. which is not represented on the diagrams. That would be the biggest difference between Amill and and Postmill is is the, the the presence of a tribulation before Jesus returns. Is that, is that accurate? yeah?
1: So sometimes the Great Tribulation, like you know, that's a specific enumeration, not enumeration, but a specific era of seven years in the dispensational view, where I think tribulation. Great Tribulation describes the whole era, you know, kind of going in waves between the first and second coming of Christ. I do think it intensifies, and then the scripture uses the idea of birth pangs, right? Mm. You know, you're like you're, Good. you know, they get worse and worse and worse, but it's the same thing. They just get kind of worse and worse and worse. Um, I do think that there is going to be a, a physical Antichrist. I think the spirit of the Antichrist is in the age. First John talks about that in chapter two. There is always. The, ant- the antichrist there 's always the spirit of the Antichrist in the age uh, I think there 's room for a mass uh, conversion of Israel uh, near the end of history um, coming into the church i think there 's room for all those things as well uh,
0: yeah i think so we, we can look at a lot of fulfillment of pro- prophecy happening progressively and so um, even if we 're anticipating an antichrist a period of tribulation that doesn 't mean that there aren't aren 't you know, leaders that are anti-Christ and there aren't periods of suffering and wars of rumors of wars, right? That's why nearly every generation has thought we are the last generation, right? Because because tribulation and suffering kind of go in cycles, right? And 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 it's probably, you know, as Matt said, will intensify and will increase prior to the coming of Christ. But it doesn't mean there isn't suffering or there isn't war or there aren't anti Christs. It just means that it's going to intensify prior to his second coming.
3: So real quick follow-up. In post-mill, you're saying, or the, that view does not include a tribulation?
1: Uh, they, okay, so there's a view called predetermine we didn't even touch, and that's that the Olivet Discourse is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And so um, so we didn't really get a chance to go into that. But yeah, when Jesus, when disciples asked, they say, you know, Jesus says this temple will be destroyed, talking about the temple at the time, and they say, well, when will these things be, and when will be the sign of your coming? Well, those are two separate questions, right? When is the temple going to be destroyed, and when is Jesus coming back? What are the signs of his coming? Two separate questions, but Jesus kind of answers them both at the same time, and it's actually interesting to try to figure out, well, which ones he talking about here? And it's almost like Jesus is saying, he's giving them, he's talking about the destruction of the temple, but he's using that as a way to describe to a greater degree what will happen before his coming. And so those, those ideas are kind of mingled. Post-mill, sometimes they say, well, those were fully fulfilled, not the return of Christ, but a lot of that stuff was fulfilled, the Great Tribulation. That was talking about what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD when Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed and all that happened in that time period. And so they don't see a period of Great Tribulation upcoming. And maybe even the Antichrist already happened. It was maybe a Roman emperor, and that's what happened. So they would say that time, that prophecy has already been fulfilled so yeah, they they would they have they didn't just pull it out of nowhere. They have interpretations that, that build up their case. But um,
0: yeah, good. Maybe maybe time for one or two more. Who uh, Tim? Can you bring bring it up here real quick, and then we'll go over here to Patrick. Thank you.
2: I was just curious. Um, most of the authors reference. You know, I was familiar with many of them, but from what I can tell, these are mostly Western, either. American or European authors, theologians. Do you find that these four, um, these four views or, or ways of looking at the end times are common all over the world in Asia, Middle East?
1: Well, uh, the, the apostolic fathers, I mean, we're all in that part of the world. Augustine is African, and so actually most of our church fathers were, were African. So, um, um, so Augustine was all millennial, so I'll throw that <laughs> out there. So yeah, um, that's all I had to say about it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I don't, I, I can't really speak a whole lot to like the history of the church, advocates, and even now globally, you know, yeah, what different church leaders around the globe would, um, what positions that they would hold to, uh, I'm not too sure. There, there does seem to be, you know, some indication that when, you know, times of suffering and persecution increase. There does seem to be, and the church would tend to say, oh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe things are premillennial, right, because we're experiencing suffering. And when things seem to be going well, post-millennialism, you know, might gain some, some following. So, yeah, I think you'd have a hard time convincing a lot of uh, non-Western Christians today that they're going to avoid suffering and persecution, right, because many of them are in the midst of it now. And so the idea that you know that they're somehow things are going to you know continue to get better or they're, that they're not going to experience it yeah it would would be difficult. But that's, that's a great question because obviously we're having kind of a, a European American focus in terms of theologians and stuff like that. Patrick,
4: um, I think it was Matt, maybe it was Tim, referenced uh, Jesus and his saints. So I just want to make sure my understanding is correct. Is that believers as saints or is it specific the first disciples or who the Catholic Church treats as saints or who is with Jesus I guess in the millennium which is different per the views so just trying to understand who that is are you talking specifically about premillennialism or all of the views
1: well I think well I said the, ident- the identification of saints in scripture in the New Testament is a common way of talking about christians like right. we are the we are holy ones and so there isn't necessarily a separate class of super saints you know <laughs> um that are separate from them. we we are the the saints of god so
0: yeah so the the amillennial view would be in 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 you know revelation 20 those that are raised to new life reigning with christ that would be any and all believer who dies that's now in heaven mm-hmm. in glory without the resurrected body reigning with christ the premillennial view um, would be that um, that that when Christ returns for His millennial reign, and and there may be some difference of opinion whether any and, any and all believers who who died b- before Jesus come are raised to their glorified bodies and reign with Him on the earth, or whether it might just be, uh, uh, you know, um, some but not all of Christians, you know, get to get to reign with Jesus in in the millennium. So there's there's some some difference there. Yeah. All right, one more. Who wants the last question? Anybody? we let Mark go again. Anybody else? All right, man.
4: So, what? I know we're talking about majoring in the majors. Um, mm-hmm. But what kind of, like, I guess I'll say butterfly effect do you think, like, someone being a dispensationalist has on like the rest of their teaching and is it is it like big enough to like someone like John MacArthur or David Jeremiah mm-hmm. um, you know tonight was a big deal for me and I you know coming to this church and I really enjoyed your guys presentation I thought it was really well done praise God um, and I I've always had a MacArthur study Bible and, and I have a David Jeremiah study Bible so like in terms of like I don't want to use the word neg- negatively, but, like, what kind of butterfly effect do you think? Like,
0: yeah, What is the impact of holding that view? How does it influence the rest of your Christian life? Correct. Because we've been saying all night, right, that, that Jesus' return, your view of, of the end times, should impact how we live, right? It should impact our, our day-to-day life. So, yeah. Matt, do you want to take that?
1: I mean, I was um, saved in a dispensational church. I went to a dispensational college and seminary that maybe trained me for ministry or dispensational, so... Definitely a godly man. I respect both the men you talked about and and those who trained me. And yeah, every church I've ever served in has been a sensational, except for Living Hope. (laughs) I went to Lutheran Church when I was growing up. But yeah, so I think that that the main thing is, is like, how how do you how do you interpret certain passages of Scripture? What's your expectation? I do think that the the idea that you're going to be raptured and and just be gone, you know, I think that does create an unhealthy expectation that you won't have to go through that. Uh, I think, yeah, it, it depends how people hold it. Some people really get zealous for, like, the nation of Israel right now and get really excited about, like, oh, the temple's getting rebuilt. Maybe this is going to happen. Like, you should not look forward to that. 70 A.D. was Jesus' complete repudiation of the temple system. It would be an abomination if it was rebuilt. Like, I'll say that. So, like, what is your expectation? What is your what is your, your hope? But I think that preaching the gospel, just making disciples, loving your neighbor, I mean, like, it's, it's all good.
0: Yeah, I, I think, I think, um, so there's two ways to look at the millennium, as Matt said, e- either, you know, Christ is returning before the millennium or after the millennium. But so even though, you know, pre-mill and ah-mill have different perspectives on when Jesus is going to return, I think they're similar in their anticipation, in, in their hope, right? The hope is that Christ will return and, and that he will, he will come in glory and he will reign. Whether there's an intermediate period of the millennium or whether it's just he comes and we enter the new heaven and the new earth. So there's the expectation. Our hope is in the world to come. Mm-hmm. Right? Our hope is not in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest concern with post-millennialism is it, it leads to this idea that, that we can make things better that not only does the church have authority and influence, not only do Christians have hope, but but that we will somehow influence government structures and education structures. And and so I think post-millennialism, as you, I think, rightly said, you lose your focus, right? Our focus is on the gospel, not on trying to transform systems of the world. My concern, I think, with dispensationalism is, you know, as we've said one, I think uh, uh, there's not a biblical warrant to separate Israel and the church. But I also think it, it leads to this, this mindset in, in Christians that we're going to be raptured before the tribulation, right? That, that we will live in victory, that we are going to be exempt, that we, you know, aren't going to suffer. And I think it, it, it leads to a misunderstanding of our current suffering, right? And, and, a, and a lack of, of perspective in what we currently experience as, as suffering. And, and, and the Bible does not pull any punches, you know, to to the suffering and the persecution that Christians will face either now or prior to the return. So, guys, thank you so much.
1: Can I, I say one yeah. more thing? Sorry, I know we're trying to wrap Go up. Go for it. I think that, you know, it's fun to talk about what the millennium is, but that should not, no matter what your view is, that shouldn't be your focus. Because that's not, that's not the end game regardless. Yep. In my view, it's not the end game because it's now. If you're a pre-millennial, it's not the end game because that is only a 1,000 years, Right. We should all look forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly dwells. Like we, our, 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 our hope should not even be when I die I go to heaven because that's temporary. We look forward to a resurrection body. Right? We will have a physical existence that will mirror, in some sense, Genesis 1 and 2, but it won't just be good or very good. It will be perfect. They're like, we will dwell on earth as God intended, um, but, even, but even better. So that, I think we should let's put our hope in the right thing. And if we focus on the right thing, we all get there dispensational, all-millennial, pre We just get there differently. Let's focus on like where we end up. And that's where I think unity comes from. So.
0: Amen. Amen. There's some uh, articles and some uh, books, recommended books posted online under the this events page. Um, so check those out for further reading. Matt and I, as we've said, we'd love to email with you, talk with you. Um, so let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, we confess again that while there are things that, that Christians um, have um, – don't have agreement about, we agree uh, that Christ is our Savior, that he is coming back, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, that uh, those who have come to Christ um, will be born will be excuse me raised again to new life, and those that have not will face e- eternal condemnation and so let us set our hope on that and expect Christ to come and live in light of that. Um, pray that that would urge us and, and fill us with hope. We thank you for these brothers and sisters here tonight.